all. Uh, welcome to the latest episode of the Pre-Raphaelite podcast. It's Alex here and I am here today with the fabulous Roberto Ferrari, uh, who is the curator and department head for the permanent art collection at Columbia University in the city of New York. He earned his PhD in art history from the Graduate Center in the City University of New York. In addition to his research and work on Simeon Solomon and his art siblings, Abraham and Rebecca, Ferrari is also a specialist on the sculpture John Gibson. He has given presentations and talks worldwide, and his essays and articles have been published in journals such as the 19th Century Art Worldwide, Art Documentation, the Journal of Pre-Raphaelite Studies, the Gay and Lesbian Review, the Journal of Art Historiography, and the PRS Review. In 2000, he launched the Simeon Solomon Research Archive, which for more than a decade has co-managed, been co-managed with Dr. Carolyn Conroy. Together, their guest edited a special issue of the PRS Review on Simeon Solomon in fall 2020. His essay on Rebecca Solomon for the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography was just published in November 22. Thank you so much for coming on today to talk to uh, me about the Solomons, Roberto. Hi, Alex, and thanks to you and the Paraphylite Society for inviting me to participate. I'm excited to do this. So always talking about the Solomons is a fun thing, so I'm glad yeah. to be here. Oh, no, it's honestly, they're such a fantastic family, aren't they, to research into. Uh, could you give us a brief biographical introduction about the Solomons and who were they and what they did? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can, to try to do it briefly is always a challenge, but essentially I think one of the most important points to understand, of course, is that the family as a um, Ashkenazi Jewish family came to England or arrived in England in the 18th century from the Netherlands or from the Germanic states. And the key thing there is trying to be entrepreneurs and as immigrants, they were trying to establish themselves. In 1831, um, their father there, meaning Abraham, Rebecca and Simeon and their siblings, their father, Michael or Meyer Salomon, he was one of the first Jews to be granted the freedom of the city of London which is significant in that it allowed for the businesses to flourish outside of the Jewish communities in the actual uh, city itself, and as a result, helped elevate the socioeconomic status of the family. Um, his wife, Catherine Levy Solomon, is reported uh, to have been a miniature, a painter of miniatures. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have any surviving examples of her work that's been mm -hmm. officially documented, so that's unfortunate, but it may say a lot about why that some of the children um, you know, turn toward art, if you will. Abraham, of course, being the first of them, there were nine children, one of whom had died as a child, as far as we know. Um, Abraham Solomon was born in 1823. Rebecca was born in 1832. And Simeon, the youngest, was born in 1840. Um, in order to better understand them too, especially Rebecca and Simeon, we have to sort of know a little bit more about Abraham. And so I won't go into excessive detail, except to say that um, he studied at Henry Sass's um, Art Academy, which at the time was one of the leading schools in London for young men specifically to get pre-training in order to get recommended to go to the Royal Academy schools. And that's exactly what happened for him. And eventually Abraham even was awarded two silver medals for his work. And this is during a period before the Paraphylite Brotherhood is actually established, right, among the group. So I think it says a lot about the moment in time in which Abraham is working. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, eventually he he became very successful in his own right. He was received commissions for portraits. Um, it's fascinating to think he worked with the daguerreotypist Antoine Claudet, actually helping to paint paintings after his daguerreotypes in order for them to be reproduced as engravings. 
So it says a lot about his interest in being involved in the commercial side of art. And I bring that up too, because we know that Rebecca Solomon studied at the Spittle School, a school of design. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, which in the late 1840s finally allowed women involved with the intention for them to become copy artists. And that becomes significant because, again, it's helping to establish um, the commercial side of art. And that's something mm -hmm. that we have a tendency to focus so much on the fine art as some sort of glorified ideology of the artist. But in fact, being able to survive as an artist, as a working artist, was key. And so um, these commercial sides, I think, are pretty important to think about sometimes. And Abraham, of course, becomes famous for paintings like First Class and Third Class, where he's actually addressing the distinction between social classes through train travel, a very modern topic at the time. Um, some of his paintings are quite funny. I think his painting, The Lion in Love, where it's an older military general who's attempting to help a young woman with her sewing <laughs> because he's clearly infatuated with her is, you know, one of the funniest Victorian paintings I've ever seen. So... I do um, like that one, though. It's a it good is. One. It's a good one. It is a good <laughs> one. So um, anyway, so I think that says a lot about uh, Abraham at the time. And Rebecca and Simeon both probably received training from Abraham first early on. We mentioned about Rebecca going to the Spittle schools. Simeon, of course, did wind up going to the Royal Academy of Schools, but he dropped out in true Paraphylite form, right? He had to be a rebellion and dropped out. <laughs> um, but he had a sketching club with people like Marcus Stone and Albert Moore and Henry Holiday and from there, um, you know, really his exposure and his meeting to George Price Boise and, um, you know, others like Edward Byrne Jones early on eventually led to his connection with Rossetti and the rest of them. Um, anyway, I'll stop there I mean, because we have a lot more to talk about, but I think that gives a kind of sort of quick overview of the early years of the family in that sense. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, I mean, the Solomons as a family, you know, you could talk about them all day. And because they're such a fascinating family, more so than just, um, you know, what Abraham got up to when, uh, you know, during the peak of his career, but also Simeon and his turbulent life um, near to, you know, to the end of his career and Rebecca's as well. Um, so let, let's touch more upon Simeon and Rebecca, because they are the ones that really had the affiliation with the Absolutely. Sure. Um, sure, yeah. What would you say? What would you say was their affiliation with the Pre-Raphaelites? You know, um, what, what kind of. Uh, things and in, in what ways did pre-Raphaelitism inspire them and in, influence their works do you think? I mean it would seem safe to say that you could the argument probably makes the most sense that because Simeon Solomon is the most famous of the three of them historically at least and and that's not necessarily only because of his art it's also because of the turbulent life as you described it that he and some of the trials and tribulations he went through but um, there are components of Abraham's work that sometimes can be considered borderline paraphylite, particularly in the way he actually addresses modern day subjects. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. in comparison to what we envision with paraphylitism, many of his paintings, though, fall more into the category of sort of Victorian morality scenes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm thinking about, I mean, it's a fascinating example where in 1860, so I always think it's as fascinating between 1858 and 1862, Four of those years, all three of them exhibited at the Royal Academy together. And it's important yeah. to remember the three of them were working at this moment in time in the same studio. So, of course, they knew what they were all painting. Um, in 1860, all three of them exhibit works that are drawn directly from literature. So um, Abraham depicts Drowned Round, which, again, is a moral subject, but at the same time is about modern day life because yeah. it's about a poor woman who's been, you know, pulled from the Thames. Um, and that is 
the title is inspired by Shakespeare, and it was actually published with a quotation from King Lear in the catalog. Um, of course, Peg Waffington's visit to Triplet that Rebecca Solomon exhibits that same year, again, a sort of literary subject coming out at the time, um, and it was considered one of her greatest works over most of her career. Everyone considered that one of her best paintings. Um, it's from a contemporary novel, and it's based on the life of an actual actress from the 18th century. And then Simeon, of course, is drawing literary inspiration right from the Book of Exodus when he does The Mother of Moses and exhibits the painting at the same time. But yet they all have different ways of approaching their literary origins. And of, of the three, Simeon is probably painting right then in that moment work that is closer to what the Paraphelites had been doing yeah. when you think about the sort of biblical um, subject matter, the attention to details, the sort of truth to nature aspects. And so I think in many ways that sort of moment for Simeon is the one where you start to see the turning point. Um, and then, of course, Abraham dies unexpectedly yeah. um, at the age of 39 in December 1862. And without a doubt, I think that really does a lot to change the way Rebecca and Simeon then develop in their careers. I think yeah. Simeon very quickly becomes absorbed into the Paraphelite circle of the time by the 1860s with Morris, William Morris, Burne Jones, Rossetti, and Swinburne. Often, you know, we forget if we think about all the art, we forget about Swinburne, but Swinburne was absolutely, you know, a critical component of part of this. And Rebecca really starts sharing a studio with Simeon, and together she starts understanding that there is a change in what's happening in taste and the mm -hmm. market. And her art starts to evolve as well. And we see her experimenting with watercolors. And then the Dudley Gallery comes along. And they're both among the top people who are always exhibiting there. So um, I think that's pretty much a good way to kind of do that. But let's go ahead. I mean, what I would love to hear, Alex, is <laughs> when we talk about some of these art, and I throw the names of the paintings out there, I know you're very interested in Rebecca. So, I mean, talk about a little, maybe tell me. I would love to hear what are some of your favorite paintings that you've seen by them? Well, I've had a long time to think about this because I've obviously been asked this question more than once about oh, Rebecca's sure. work. Um, but yeah. I do, just, just to start off, I really do um, agree with you about this whole point. In, in 1860, you really do see a turning point in both Simeon and Rebecca's careers, not even so much in, in just in their, you know, in their artwork, but also them as person, like, like personally yeah. as actual artists. Yeah. And um, figuring themselves out and their identity as artists, mm -hmm. as you know, as professional artists. And, you know, I was reading some some of the correspondence the other week of, um, you know, some some of the uh, some of the celebrities, if you will, that visited their studios and attended their yes, wild absolutely. parties. And they had great parties, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, they were an absolute um, wild bunch to be around, weren't they? Yeah. Um, but I. I one of the trips that I went on uh, took me to Castle Howard in York mm -hmm. um, a couple of months ago, and I was reading the diaries of Rosalind Howard, and they were talking about how they didn't come back from their parties in like till 12 in the morning, which is, you know, so interesting to read. And, uh, you know, it kind of gives you a picture of what kind of people um, and what, you know, what kind of people Simeon and Rebecca really were. Uh, well, and know. it's funny because we don't even understand yet fully the, the how much of a part of a broad circle of the art world that they became because of these actual, these social events, these parties. Uh, years ago, I discovered at the Henry Moore Institute in the Thornycroft papers that Hamo Thornycroft even went to one of Simeon's parties where it comes up <laughs> randomly saying that he had been to one of the parties around 1870. So it just sort of reinforces that everyone knew everyone. 
And there are a number of letters that survive where Simeon writes to a number of different artists. And they basically, he basically says, without any dates, of course, come to my party on Tuesday. <laughs> and that's it. And, you know, you just apparently everyone just knew where to go at that point. So, yeah, uh, yeah no, it was the, the social hub of the 19th century, wasn't it? The, that Absolutely. Studio. <laughs> but I, mean, I think the best part about that, though, is at the same time, we think about the lives of these people. And yet, as much as we're trying to reconstruct and understand, there's so many components of this we don't know. Yeah. And when it comes back to their artwork, the paintings and the drawings and the prints after these works that survive, we we see them for their image, imagery, their iconography, um, their relationship to other paintings that were being made at the same time. But we also kind of need to understand that these paintings are a direct reflection of the lives that they are living. Yeah. And so as we were just saying, I mean, you know, there are a Jewish family. Rebecca is a woman artist struggling to be recognized in her own way as a as a painter among men, that when they compliment her that she paints like a man, that's actually considered high praise in the 19th century, as insulting as it might sound today. Yeah. Um, and then Simeon is really trying to understand his own sexual identity as a, as a, a, a you could say, gay, homosexual, queer. Mm -hmm. The terminology evolves even within the historiography of Simeon himself and where yeah. we are today in our world. Um, but for sure, we look back and we see Simeon as a sort of queer icon, if you will, now because of his uh, artwork demonstrating an exploration of these issues. And you've written about the governess, right? Where again, yeah. Rebecca is thinking about the role of women and how they are struggling in their own way um, to to survive. Yeah, and I think that like the recent research that I've been doing into uh, Rebecca and what I find really interesting is that uh, in various different you know pieces of scholarship, people have either identified her as a genre painter or identified her as a pre-Raphaelite painter or whatever, and no one has been quite able to pin her down or identify her as such. And um, I personally think that it's her identity as a, as a Jewish woman, as a Jewish mm -hmm. woman artist that has kind of developed her critical consciousness in her art. And I think that a lot of her art, such as The Governess, is what you've just discussed. You, you really get a sense of... Um, what Rebecca Solomon was really interested in and what the kind of things that she wanted to address in her works. And this is what I like about Rebecca Solomon's artwork and, you know, t touching on, you know, my favourite artworks of Rebecca Solomon's. Right, this yeah. is why I really like the, um, the Virtuous and Dissolute Undergraduate, mm. the pair of paintings that kind of go in together. And because I think it's really interesting how she explores the dynamics between not just you know, men and women, but also uh, men and women from different social classes, social uh, economic backgrounds, and how she kind of addresses those, you know, those concepts. And I, I also think that the critical reception of those two paintings uh, was really interesting because she got a lot of stick for mm. uh, Virtuous and Dissolute Undergraduate. And I personally think they're absolutely brilliant, but some of the reasons as to why, um, say, the Illustrated London News, uh, the Westminster Review, um kind of launched a scathing attack on these two paintings just because of the way she depicted the men. And I think I think she was a woman ahead of her time, essentially, uh, especially in those two works. And I also do like um, The Young Teacher, obviously, mm -hmm. that that's such a brilliant right. painting that transcends the social boundaries between, you know, b between women of colour and, and white women. 
and especially it gives us a really special insight into her relationship with the Solomon's relationship with Fanny Eaton um, who I discuss with Brian Eaton in another episode of the podcast yeah Yeah. so when that does come out um, be sure to listen to that because it's a fascinating one Um, but it is really interesting no I mean I think what's fascinating too to understand that this sort of criticism that you were mentioning about the two uh, the idol and the industrious students that Rebecca does in that pair the, the sort of panic over masculinity that's mm-hmm. happening at the moment when those come out. The lion in love that I mentioned by Abraham Solomon was rejected by critics at the time for the same ideology that this soldier, this great, you know, manly figure is being reduced to a figure of, of, of ridicule because he's fallen in love with this young woman. And it is funny because, you know, when you think about these things, the fear of what masculinity represented for these artists at this time and the way they're trying to address it, examine it, make fun of it. And then, of course, you think about Simeon Solomon, whose paintings are trying to introduce a new form of masculinity, one in which the male body is being admired as a form of beauty. I mean, we understand that today we look back at Simeon's paintings um, like The Two Acolytes, or, um, you know, the youth holding the Torah scrolls, where we see them as sort of male stunners. Colin Cruz has really written well about this. Um, The notion that, you know, when we envision paraphyletism of this moment, we think of Rossetti and these beautiful women, these idealized vision of women. Simeon's doing the same thing, but he's taking the idea of masculinity and sort of turning it on its head because Mm -hmm. now he's making the male body subject to it. And these are not... Uh, this is not the sort of neoclassical uh, virile man of early, you know, neoclassicism. This is the male form as, a, you know, as an object of beauty in a new way. So, again, it's really playing with these bigger ideas about what's happening at that moment in time in, in terms of gender relationships and everything. So it really demonstrates that these three artists in their own way are looking at these different issues that are happening, even if they're not trying to blatantly say to audiences this is what I'm doing. You can see from the reviews and the reactions against some of these works, how people were creating a sort of panic around them because yeah. of what they were challenging and jeopardizing. So yeah, no, it's fascinating. Yeah. And essentially, th- th- I think this reaffirms their position in the pre canon and not even just the pre canon, but I think art history of the 19th century and why they are such important artists to be considered in the canon of art in the 19th century. Absolutely. No, I mean, I've said over and over that in the 19th century, there are so many, you know, I mean, when we look at, I mean, especially, so as a U.S. American art historian or uh, somebody from the United States um, of European, both British and Italian ancestry, it's been fascinating that when you study art history in the United States, it is so French focused. Mm -hmm. That when I was embarking on a dissertation project related to a British artist, I mean, I was basically told, go look, good luck finding a job, because the idea is, especially if you studied 19th century art, you had to study French art or that was it. I bring that up because, you know, even within the context of the sort of British nationalist movement in regard to studying British art within the United Kingdom, there's also a hierarchy, right? So the paraphilites historically were sort of lower in the tier of what you would see if you study Joshua Reynolds or Turner and Constable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And things like that. But I think there's been such an incredible evolution and a way to really think about these artists. I mean, Tim Berenger, Jason Rosenfeld, 
Allison Smith, they've really done amazing jobs to sort of remind us of how revolutionary these artists were at that moment in time. Absolutely. Um, and the experimentation and the way that they thought about and the way they addressed both historical perspectives, but also contemporary culture, um, they were very brave in a way that, you know, people are just becoming, you know, becoming sort of rediscovering in a way. Yeah. Definitely. So let's link this back to you then and to your research. So (laughs) I know I'm digging deep into your life now, aren't I? (laughs) Um, So what made you want to research the Solomons? Where where did all this start and why are they so interesting to you? So many, many, many years ago, (laughs) it's a scenario where, you know, I mean, it's really fascinating because I think back to myself when I was getting my master's degree in interdisciplinary humanities, which was about 30 years ago, um, the world was so different then. And yeah, and it was funny because I had a professor who helped make me feel inspired by Victorian culture in a way that I had not had that experience before. I mean, you would read, you know, Dickens, et cetera, but having somebody actually talk about Victorian art and architecture and fashion in a class was eye-opening. And so I did my master's thesis on the um, the Beldam San Merci motif in poetry by Swinburne and paintings by Rossetti. And somewhere in the long the way with all of this, I stumbled across Simeon Solomon. And at the moment when all of this was happening, I was going through my own sort of personal identity crisis. And, you know, I've been very open about the fact that I was coming out at that time in my own personal life and going through the struggle of trying to understand who I was and discovering an artist who went through these incredible challenges in the 19th century and yet produced incredible work that I was enthralled by, um, just inspired me to read more about him. And I Mm -hmm. literally started reading everything I could get my hands on about Simeon Solomon, which wasn't a lot. But then when you started digging into the 19th century and early 20th century, there was a lot of things that would come up. And along the way, this turned into my, you know, an early article, which was an annotated bibliography about the scholarship about Simeon Solomon in an effort to sort of revitalize his life and, and scholarship around him. And that was published in the Journal of Paraphylite Studies. And David Latham was incredibly helpful, encouraging me to do that. Um, and then from there, I used that as the basis to create the Simeon Solomon Research Archive, which is now 22 years old. And I, I say that because, I mean, just to think about what the internet, how much that has changed. Um, you know, when I learned how to do HTML, it's so beyond me now. But at the time, that was an incredible skill to learn. And I designed this web page and I just put it up. And it really had an incredible uh, development as a result. And then ever since then, I mean, I always talk about Lionel Lamborn, Gail Seymour, and then even at that point, Colin Cruz in the early 2000s was beginning to do a lot of his work. I was so fortunate to have the chance to meet all of them, and they were so encouraging and moving forward. And of course, Gail and Lionel had do- done so much on the Solomon um, in terms of helping to establish things. And then learning about Rebecca Solomon with Jan Marsh and Pamela Yersh Nunn's early work. Um, really, all of this really helped to just continue to drive. And it's been exciting to see the way that it's continued to develop and have new people, including you, Alex, talking <laughs> about these artists um, and really seeing where it's going forward. So there's so much more we can learn about their Absolutely. work. Um, and their lives still. So I'm I'm eager to continue to have all of this go forward and we'll see how it yeah. uh, continues to evolve. 
And you mentioning um, the likes of Lambourne and and Jan Marsh and Pamela Gerish Nunn and all of these people who have contributed to your uh, researching journey into the Solomons. You are what well, essentially was my inspiration into looking into the Solomons because it was one of your um, earlier essays that you submitted to the Pre-Raphaelite Society's review that inspired me to think, hang on, who is this woman? Who is Rebecca Solomon? And my search started from there. So um, I think we can add you to the list of famous names well, in the I'm Solomon world. Well, I'm to hear that. It's also a testament <laughs> to what we call aging, right? That this is parts of what happened. So uh, Alex, you'll be there too one day. You'll see. Uh, I was going to say. There'll be a new PhD student who wants to interview <laughs> you for a podcast or some holographic um, version in the future. I was going to say, I was going to make a comment <laughs> on how old um, the uh, the Solomon archive is to how old I am, but uh, I'm not going to touch on that today. Yeah, I, I can imagine, I'm sure. No, 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 but I mean, you know, what's fun about this is, is that uh, you know, truthfully, I think it says a lot, too, when we think about the lives of these people and the historiography around their lives and their artwork. Art history changes, literary history changes, and, you know, critical studies evolve and change. And to be able to find multiple generations of people discovering these artworks, looking at them more closely, thinking about current scholarship and the way we live today and how we look back at this and can still find new meaning and make new discoveries. I think that's one of the greatest things that demonstrates the sustainability and the, and the reason why they're important. I mean, and yeah. so there's a lot to be said to bring that forward. No, there um, definitely is. Yeah. I mean, and these scholars are all still around and yeah, I hope to be around for a while still working on this too. So I've got some <laughs> you, projects. You definitely will. You I absolutely do. I will. Projects. And, you know, I think you mentioned earlier, and I think it's important to mention about Fanny Eaton again, too. I mean, one of the more exciting um, and yet tragic stories that comes into all of this is the Fanny Eaton connection, too. Yeah. And I'm thrilled that Brian Eaton um, has been another great uh, partner who's been so encouraging. Um, I think Jan Marsh and I, it's safe to say, are, you know, the two people, in addition to Pamela Gerish Nunn, who tried to really help excavate and understand more about Fanny Eaton's life too. And, yeah. you know, again, it, what, what I find fascinating about her connection with the Solomons is the notion that she's another immigrant story, slavery as part of her family ancestry is a key component of this and mm -hmm. British colonialism. Here's a woman who is, you know, struggling to survive in her own way too, numerous children just trying to make you know make it as an immigrant coming into well i'm not really an immigrant i mean officially she was still a british citizen at the yeah. time because of the empire but at the same time new to the london world and trying to absolutely make it in a new country if, if you will but um yeah that connection is really important there too so let, let's address the you know we cannot discuss the Solomons without discussing the controversy surrounding their, you know, the declines of their careers, uh, Simeon sure, and uh, Rebecca yeah. in particular. Um, and as you said, there's been so much scholarship, uh, well, say so much scholarship on, um, you know, trying to uncover or trying to answer the the questions yeah. that have been less un left unanswered um, to what actually happened. Um, what what do you think actually happened? Could you address this speculation surrounding them? Sure. I mean, of course, you know, I mean, of course, the tragedy, as it was always classified for Simeon Solomon, was that. He was arrested in 1873 for homosexual crimes, and it was then discovered subsequently in 1874 that it, the same thing happened in Paris. Um, he was fortunate in that he was able to not necessarily have to serve a long term, and his family helped him out in the first incident in 1873. Mm -hmm. But in Paris in the next year, he was imprisoned for at least six months. 
And without a doubt, that really created a new shadow, um, more probably about the lack of, I think other people were probably not surprised as much as not, um, they didn't want to be surrounded or associated with the controversy of what it represented. Yeah. Um, I, I can't believe that someone like Swinburne was that surprised as much as um, Swinburne was as much of an active participant in much of this, mm-hmm. I believe, than anything else. So um, all I say is that I think Swinburne, though, was one of the first people to immediately run the opposite way and said, I knew nothing because he had to protect his own career and think about that, too. Yeah. So, um, again, this is not about judgment. This is about just discussion. But as a result, the perception is that Simeon sort of disappears from the art world. Right. Yeah. In fact, that did not happen at all. Carolyn Conroy, in particular, did an amazing job with her dissertation and much of her work that she's written really piecing together the life that Simeon had. We have Mm -hmm. estimated at this point, there's more than 500 paintings that probably exist between 1873 and 1905 when he finally died. Now, there were people that supported him. There were opportunities where his family tried to support him. He said, no, I prefer to live my own life the way I want to live it. And so really sort of finding a way to, you know, continue to find his own identity, I think was part of that legacy that needs to be understood in a new way. Um, And again, I think Carolyn did a great job in trying to piece that together. So that's part of the correction in the history and the biography. And the exact same thing, sorry, the exact same thing happened to Rebecca as well, didn't it? You know, there's this, there's so much speculation surrounding her work and the fact that she more or less completely vanished off the face of the earth following her brother's arrest. But there is evidence to suggest that she was very actively exhibiting her work. Absolutely. She stayed involved. She still was exhibiting. I mean, the extant correspondence that we find from this period demonstrates her still trying to find commissions trying to find exhibition venues. So again, I mean, she is, she was an incredibly skillful and acute, um, you know, business person about her art. And she's doing this at that same moment in time. You know, the fact that she's still documented in the 1881 census as a practicing artist in her own independent studio is significant. Yeah, it is. Again, the shadow of what they claim is that she may have suffered from alcoholism. Again, there's no evidence for this. I don't know where that came from, mm-hmm. but it's been, you know, it's been sort of documented. And of course, the tragedy for her is that she was literally run over by a hansom cab in 1886 and died afterward. And it was an accident, as far as we know. But the tragedy of that cutting her life short and what could have happened thereafter. But um, yeah, I mean, that again is part and parcel of this. But I think. Um, their mother died the same year. Yeah. Um, and I've always it was a month like, afterwards, wasn't it? Yeah, they were right yeah. within the same time period. And the notion of like now Simeon there, right, is the surviving artist at that point. And yet he still continues for another 20 years to produce mm-hmm. work, you know, living in and out of workhouses and, and on the street. But, um, you know, again, it's part of that story. And I think what we need to not get hung up on is the the idea that, oh, it's a tragedy, we should feel sorry for them. I think in many ways, the fact that they struggle to survive both from a personal life story, but also through their art, which is the way they were able to communicate and leave their legacy. Yeah. That's the emphasis that we should be focusing on about what happened um, later on in their lives. Um, yeah. And I think after so much speculation, I really do think art historians, and this is kind of what I'm trying to do with my current research, we need to actually restore their names to significant figures in art history more so than just, um, you know, labeling them as 
having turbulent lives and you know right, such exactly. an unfortunate career decline we shouldn't be defining them as that we should be defining them for their successes for their collective and individual efforts um you know as independent working professional artists. yeah absolutely yeah there's still more to be said and there's still much yeah. more to discover and there's still much more to think about for many of these artists i mean there's so many in the group um you know in this larger parapolite world that there's mm-hmm. still so much um the heavy hitters like rossetti and burn jones and Millet and um, William Morris and William Holman Hunt. I mean, of course, they're all critically important because of their foundation and everything they actively contributed. Um, but so much of the scholarship has focused around them. And, you know, there are so many more artists in this circle that um, are getting their uh, attention and getting the recognition for what they, how they lived and what their contributions were to this incredible movement. Um, but yeah, there's still so much to do. Yeah. And I think even more so than the Solomons, I think, especially with recent scholarship and all of these, you know, forthcoming projects that are coming to light Mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, the uncovering of so many people that people had never even heard about before or merely have just seen their faces or heard their names mentioned in some correspondence that they found in an archive. There's so much more being done to, you know, to connect the dots and establish these connections between these artists. Um, And I, I really do think that, um, there is such a bright future for, you know, for the, for the field of pre-Raphaelitism and its research. Absolutely. And the more we can build, I mean, I think, you know, we said it before, the way societies today are evolving and changing mm-hmm. is really in many ways more relevant to understanding these artists, the Solomons, but others in this world. Um, you know, for studying a woman artist from the 19th century, there are still many parts of the world where women's rights are still not accepted or LGBTQ yeah. rights are not acknowledged. And so we can understand more and anti-Semitism still exists. I mean, so taking it from Definitely. those three, we can understand or at least try to understand how difficult it was for them and then understand really and champion what they were able to accomplish. Yeah. you know facing this at that moment in time so well I I think we're more or less running out of time so I better wrap the episode up there but thank you so much for coming to talk to me today today for the Solomon special thank you Alex it was a great pleasure to talk to you about this and and uh yeah there's so much more to say and do so yeah this is great thanks so much I'm glad we had a chance to do this thank you